As we've gone through this series on liberation theology, we've thought a lot about utopia. Because in many ways, that is what Marxism, which inspired liberation theology, is all about. About bringing about a kind of utopia on earth, heaven on earth. Now, you know, at the heart of every utopian plan is a solution to the problem of stuff, the problem of possessions. You know, in, in most cases, as if, if, we're, if we're honest about it, if we just look around the world, in most cases, uh, the, the, the problems of our world, the, the, the conflict, the, the, the oppression of people, it, it seems to revolve around stuff. People fighting over the accumulation and the possession and the protection of their stuff. And, and so in most cases, when, when, when people have utopian schemes and they want to bring heaven to earth, you know, they, they got to deal with this problem. And, and as, as I've kind of looked at it, not just Marxism, but other different things as well, I mean, what you see again and again is that the solution that most people offer is private property just largely disappears. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just make it go away. And as good, red-blooded Americans, that just, that gets under our skin. We don't like that. That's wrong. We believe deeply in private property. But before we, we write off these utopians, I mean, just think about it. People, human beings in this world today are bought and sold. Wages are artificially suppressed. Working conditions are neglected deliberately. I point to the recent collapse of the building in Bangladesh. All of it so that some people can have more at the expense of other people. So we can think that getting rid of private property is wrong. But we've got to at least feel a little bit of sympathy for why people would want to do this. There's a lot of wrong that happens around private property. Now, how, how do utopian schemes generally try to address this? Well, a really common way of addressing it is the commune. Oregon has its own, you know, special history with the commune, as, as I understand. Actually, one of the very first things that people told me about uh, was was the yeah, Raj, Rajneeshi. I, I don't, I can't pronounce his name, but you know that that whole like crazy history. Uh, so, so you all, you all have lived through commune, well, not personally, but on the pages of the newspaper, you, you, you've seen commune life up close and personal. Now, now I want you to set aside that that particular example and think think about it just in general. That, but what a commune is and why why the appeal in in a commune. What you've got is intentional community. This is at its best. Intentional community in which both ownership and authority is collective rather than private. Collective ownership of stuff and collective exercise of authority rather than private ownership and personal and private exercise of authority. And there are lots of examples. The kibbutz in Israel. The Soviet, which is where we get the name Soviet Union. 
These, these were, were collectives. These, these were communes. The, the ashram. Now, that's closer to what you all experienced here in Oregon. And, and they, they all have this, this kind of different politics, but, but a shared philosophical and social appeal of a, of a common shared life in which all of the conflict over private possession goes away. You know, if, if, if the stuff isn't mine but it's ours, then instead of fighting you for possession of it, I'm going to work with you for the common good. That, that seems to be the idea, right? Conflict resolved. It's a great theory, but history hasn't borne it out, has it? It never seems to quite work the way it's designed to work in the real world. Someone... Or, or some group always still seems to be in possession of what is supposed to belong to everyone. Liberation theology, like every other utopian plan, was all about trying to return ownership of the land and, and ownership of the wealth of the nation to the people, taking it away from the privileged few and giving it back to the people. But when we, once again, for this last time, turn to the original liberation theology of Exodus, we see something quite different. Not a return of ownership to the collective people, but a return of the collective people to their original owner. That's God. God has a commune, you see. And in God's commune, what God possesses is his people. And what the people possess, well, they're God. So as we conclude our series this morning on liberation theology, I want to invite you to consider what it means that freedom from slavery, because that's what this has been all about, a liberation from slavery. It turns out, what, what does it mean that freedom from slavery actually means being possessed by God? Not possessed by yourself. Not free to go anywhere and do anything, but actually free to be possessed by God. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. It's found on page 116 of the Pew Bibles, if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided. Exodus chapter 19. This is the last chapter in Exodus of the narrative of the liberation from Egypt. After this, beginning in chapter 20, we've got law, we've got the establishment of the covenant, we've got all sorts of preparation for the temple and preparation really for the journey to the promised land. We don't get a whole lot of narrative after this, not pure narrative. Now this chapter, chapter 19, is structured around Moses climbing Mount Sinai three times. Now, it doesn't tell us that he did it three times in a day. I can't imagine that he did it three times in a day. I, I climbed Mount Sinai back when I was younger, and it is, it's a tough climb. It's doable, but it's a tough climb. So, so it's possible that this chapter actually happens over a couple of days. But it's structured around these three ascents in verse 3, and in verse 8, and in verse 20. And every time he goes up to the top of the mountain, he, he's going up there because God has something to say. Actually, something to say not to Moses, but something to say to the people down below that he's rescued. And that he's brought to this mountain because he's brought them to himself. And, and, and this, is, this is kind of the way it structures out. This, this is the way it looks. In, in verses 1 to 8, what we see 
is what God has to say by way of promise, God's promise to his people. That's, that's the first message, a promise to his people. Then in verses 8 to 15, God talks about his provision for his people. His provision for his people. And then third, in verses 16 to 25, what we see is God's presence with his people. His presence with his people. You know, I never do alliteration, but there it is. God's promise to his people. God's provision for his people. God's presence with his people. That's kind of the outline as we walk through the chapter today. And as we do, I want you to consider what it means that God possesses his people. And consider what God may be saying to you today. All right, first, God's promise to his people. Look with me there in verse one. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back. And summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. All right, it's been two months. The people have finally arrived at their destination, not their final destination, but the place God said he was going to bring them first. They've arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai. Now, they don't know this, but they're going to be camped out in front of this mountain for a year. They don't actually set out. There's no movement again until Numbers chapter 11, when, when they finally march out from Mount Sinai on their way to the promised land. Uh, over, the, over this next year, God is going to give them his law. He establishes covenant. Uh, they're going to be preparing for this journey. Now, what's dawning on Moses, though, must be dawning on him at this point, is that God keeps his promises. God, God has specifically at this point, kept the promise that he made to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. You remember what he told Moses. This will be the sign that I sent you. When you've left Egypt, you and all the people of Israel will worship me at this mountain. And here they are. Just a few months later, they're, they're there. Now, in light of this salvation that God has accomplished, this, this liberation from Egypt... He makes them a new promise there in verse five. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all possessions, you will all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. If Israel will now simply obey God, if they'll if they'll simply follow him. Like an obedient son, then God promises that they will be his treasured possession out of all the earth. Here's God's goal in the liberation of, of Israel. The possession of Israel. 
Pharaoh had possessed Israel as slaves. But God now wants to possess them as the very brightest jewel in his crown. A a royal treasure. He he says they're going to be a holy nation to him. That is to say, a nation that is set apart, distinct, not common like the rest of the nations, but especially for God, set apart for him. He says that they're going to be a kingdom of priests. Now, that doesn't sound very attractive to us. I mean, who wants to be a priest, right? But what you've got to understand that is in this context, to be a priest is to be an insider. It's to be someone with access. Because priests get to stand in the presence of God. And so this is an incredible privilege that he is offering to the entire nation. Not just a few priests, but the whole nation, insiders. Personal, direct access to God. Privileged people. Now you notice that the promise comes with a condition. If. If if you're obedient. Covenant obedience. And as we see there in verse 8, the people accept the condition. They promise, yep, we will do everything. Everything you say. We'll obey you in everything. Now we'll come in just a minute to the impossibility of the condition and the ridiculousness of their reply. But we don't want to rush past the promise. God's promise is that the people that he has saved will be his treasured possession. Not slaves, but sons. Not not held at a distance, but but insiders, priests with, with access. Not trash, treasure. Not common, but uniquely and specially loved. Friends, this is God's promise to his people and only to his people. Can you imagine for just a moment what it means to be treasured by God, to be treasured by God? I mean, God has everything, right? There's nothing in, in the entire cosmos that is not God's. So can you imagine what it means to be his people? That is to be the ones who out of Everything there is, he especially treasures. Do you have anything that you treasure? Something that just means a great deal to you. Think first about stuff, right? I have, I have sitting in my office, my grandfather's stethoscope, and his his prescription pad, and and a couple of other instruments that he used to use. In, in his practice as a, as a pediatrician. And, and they sit there on, on a shelf, and I, and I see them every day. And, and that's because th- there's probably no human being on this planet Earth that's ever lived on this planet Earth m- more important to me than my grandfather. When, when my own father failed me, my grandfather stepped in. You know, he, he taught me. He, he loved me. He, he stuck with me. And my grandfather died uh, many years ago, and this is this is kind of what I have left. It reminds me who he was. I treasure those things. But you know, those things, of course, point to to what I really treasure. I'm sure what you really you may have stuff that you treasure, but but isn't what we really treasure people? I, I treasure my grandfather and, and his memory. I I treasure my kids and and my wife. 
we, we treasure people. They are special to us. We could lose everything else. But so long as we hold on to them, it's okay. Friends, this is God for his people. He treasures his people. Now, what I find really striking as, as we think about the fact that God treasures us is, is, is the, way that, the way that hits us, the way that corresponds to something inside of us. We, I think, spend our whole lives looking for someone who will treasure us. We, we want to be treasured. So now stop thinking about who and what you treasure. I want you to think about yourself. We want to be treasured. We want to be loved. We, we want to be esteemed and, and respected. We all want to be valued above other things. And, and that's right. I, I think we were actually made that way. We were made in the image of God. We, we bear his stamp. We, we bear his fingerprints on us. We were made to be valued. Because we have great value. You may be sitting here this morning, you may not think you have great value. But you, but you must understand that your value has really nothing to do with, with what you've accomplished in this life. It has nothing to do with your looks it has nothing to do with how much money you make or the skills you have. It has everything to do. It has everything to do with the fact that God made you in his image. You are valuable. You are worth being treasured. And we feel that in us. And so what do we do? Because we want to be treasured because we were made to be treasured. So what do we do? We go to the people around us and we say, treasure me. Right? Right? Because I'm worth being treasured. We, we, go, we go to our spouse and we say, Tre- treasure me. We, we go to our parents and we say, hey, look at me. Pay attention to me. Treasure me. As parents, we, we go to our children and we say, treasure me. This is, this is deep inside of us. You know, we, we see people doing it in all sorts of wrong ways. We, we see, you know, maybe, maybe women out there at the mall or whatever dressed in ways that are designed to call attention to their bodies. You know what's going on there? They are screaming out, would someone please treasure me? We, we, we see guys strutting their stuff. Do you know what's going on there? They're saying, I want to be treasured. I need to be treasured. And this, this is how I think I'm going to get it. And you may not be out there strutting your stuff and you may not be dressing in such a way to attract attention to yourself. But if you're anything like me, and I think you are, in lots of other ways, you are saying to the people around you, treasure me. Treasure me. I'm, I'm worth being treasured. And you know what happens? They don't do it. Do they? Oh, they do it a little bit. Our spouses, our friends, our children, our parents, they treasure us a little bit, but not as much as we want them to. Because we live in a fallen world, we're we're broken. I'm too busy trying to get you to treasure me to pay any attention to, to treasuring you the way I ought to, the way you ought to be treasured. I I don't have time to treasure you. Because my whole life is built around getting you to treasure me. This is who we are. 
And when we're not treasured the way we know we should be, the way we ought to be, what happens? We get bitter. We're hurt. We become discontent in our relationships. If I just had better kids, kids that appreciated me like the way I deserve to be appreciated, my life would be much, much better. If, if I just had a different spouse or a, just a spouse who would treasure me the way I deserve to be treasured, my life would be so much better. If I had a boss that just understood how valuable I am to this corporation, my life would be so much better. Because I should be treasured. But I'm not. And so I'm discontent. And I end up manipulating the people around me. Or I end up trying to bribe them into treasuring me. Or I just reduce myself to begging. And all that ends up happening. As we look at all the people around us. And we say treasure me, treasure me, treasure me. All that really ends up happening. Is we end up really messing those relationships up. We hurt those relationships. We damage those relationships because what we're doing is we're asking of those other people something that they weren't made to give, that they can't do. The people around me cannot treasure me the way I want to be treasured. You're not up to the task, and neither am I. And of course, the irony is in all of this looking for being treasured by the people around us, We ignore, we scorn the one whose treasuring of us matters the most. That's God. And in fact, the only one who, when he treasures us, it really satisfies. It actually, it actually meets that place deep inside. And we feel treasured as we've always wanted to be, as we've always needed to be. Friends, we were made to be treasured, but we were made to be treasured by God. And God alone can do it. And, and, and when, we, when we discover that, and when we begin to experience what it means that God treasures me, God treasures his people, an amazing thing happens. I now no longer need to use you to treasure me. Because God is treasuring me. And I'm content in that. I am satisfied in that. And so I am now set free. I don't have to manipulate you anymore to be impressed with me. I don't have to use you anymore to to make me feel the way I, I, I need to feel, to make me feel treasured. No, I'm now free to just love you. And you're free to love me. God treasures his people. We need to grab hold of that. Because that truth will not only change our relationship with God, it will change our relationship with all the people around us. Now, now there's more going on here. I mean, as a a church, the people of God gathered right here in this neighborhood, we need to take seriously this description of us as a holy nation, as as a kingdom of priests. You know, when when God makes us his people, when he begins to treasure us, not just individually, the way I've been talking about, but treasures us, collectively as the people of God, he he gives us a purpose. We have a purpose in this world. We are to be set apart for God in this world. And we're being set apart for God in order to be mediators of God's blessing to the world. So set apart from the world in order to mediate God's blessing back to the world. That's the way it works. We don't bless the world by blending into the world. 
by being indistinguishable from the world, by, by, by interacting with the world in such a way that the world feels like it's just interacting with itself, only maybe a slightly nicer version. Now that, that's, that's not how this works. If we're going to bless the world, mediate God's blessing back to the world as priests, we have to first be set apart from the world. We have to be distinct. We have to be holy and different. But we don't bless the world by avoiding it, do we? We don't, we don't bless the world now that we've been set apart from the world. We don't bless it by isolating ourselves from the world. No, we have a mission back to the world, a, a priestly mission to stand between God and the world, to intercede for the world, and to speak God's message back to the world. A, a message of grace, the, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that God would be reconciled to sinners. That God would take people that, that have made trash of their lives and through Christ turn them into treasure. This is the message that we've been given. This is what we're to be as a local church. God's possession. We don't belong to ourselves. We, we don't belong to the elders. We don't belong to any committee in this church. We don't belong to, to the history of this church or the tradition of this church. We don't belong to the oldest members. No, we belong to God. We are God's possession in this congregation. We are his treasure. And, and, and he has taken us as this, as this royal property and set us apart in the world to be visible in it. To be seen as treasure. And then to speak back into the world his words of grace, his blessing. Now, now that means we need to be visible, but not entirely comfortable, right? Uh, uh, accessible, but not exactly the same. In the world but not of the world. How, how do we do that as a congregation? Oh, well, one great way, and I'm glad it's happening again this year, that we can do that is through Henson Summer Camp. There's a, there's a great place where we as a distinct people are, are, are taking our, our time and our gifts and our talents and we're using it to be a blessing back into the world, speaking a message of, of hope and salvation to the kids that come to our camp. But Henson Summer Camp surely isn't the only way. Maybe isn't even the most important way. Perhaps one of the most important things we do for the world around us and for our neighborhood specifically is we gather here on Sunday nights to pray. To pray for this church, to pray for our neighborhood, to pray for our non-Christian friends. Because if anything's going to happen, God's going to have to do it. And God responds to the prayers of his people. So friend, do you want to feel, member of Henson Baptist Church in particular, do you want to feel like you're doing something effective as God's royal treasure set apart in the world with a mission to the world? Let me encourage you. Try praying. Try joining with us. Come back out on Sunday night and pray with us. There's, there's our personal evangelism as all of us are out and about with the friends that God's given us and the places that God's given us, speaking these words of truth, not isolating ourselves, but engaged. Uh, there, there's our involvement with, with uh, Buckman School and, and the larger Buckman community, which, which is fantastic. But, but there's so much more that that we can do. And this is not to guilt you. It is actually to try to help you see that, that there are opportunities out there. I was speaking to Darlene Maddox just before the service. Darlene, I didn't warn you I was going to do this, but I hope this is okay. I, I was speaking to Darlene Maddox, and you know that, that about a year ago, a little, little more than a year ago now, Dan and Darlene went through a terrible tragedy. They, they lost their, their youngest son to suicide. 
a parent's greatest fear, an incredible heartache. I feel like I don't, I don't even have the words to be able to talk about it with you, that, that do the pain of the situation justice. And yet Darlene's been sharing with me about how out of that grief and out of that loss over the past year, God has placed her in a community of other parents who have lost children to to suicide. And these are parents who do not know God. And if there is a God, as far as these parents are concerned, they are angry at that God. Because they understand that in some way that that, that God is in control and, and it's his fault. And God's placed her there. And God, in the midst of her pain, in the midst of her loss, has given her words of hope to these parents. As she shared with me before the service, sometimes God has to take someone out of our life for us to know what our purpose in life is. Darlene's experienced something of that in this past year. In losing Nathan, finding this incredible purpose of hope, of communicating the gospel hope, to other hurting parents. Friend, what opportunity has God given you to be a priest in this world? Set apart, holy, different, and yet in the world, speaking the hope of the gospel to the people around you. Well, in talking about being treasured by God, about being given a purpose in the world, a a priestly purpose, We cannot ignore the condition that God sets. The condition that he sets for Israel, not not for their salvation. He's already saved them. You know, he's already brought them out of Egypt. But the condition that he sets for them continuing in the blessings of that relationship. The condition is obedience. The condition is, is holiness. We need to be really clear here. We are not worthy of God's treasuring in our sin. In our sin, in our unholiness, what we are worthy of is his judgment. And and not even once in this chapter, not even once does God say that he will treasure them no matter what. No, no matter what you do, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to keep treasuring you. That's not what he says. There is a clear and a strong and an unescapable if right there in verse five. Now, if you obey me fully. In a very real sense here for Israel, the blessings of God are not unconditional. They are very much conditioned. They are conditional on Israel's holiness. And what is true of Israel is true of us as New, as New Testament Christians. We don't earn our salvation. Right? We don't, we don't become holy and then God saves us. But the New Testament is very clear here. If we are to remain in the blessing of God's salvation, if we're to remain in his treasuring of us, we must be holy. Now, I'm making some of you uncomfortable. But here's what the author to Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 14. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And and I could take you to verse after verse in the New Testament that, that repeats that theme. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, not even Christians. Obedience matters. Holiness matters. So where does that leave us? 
Well, it leaves us in deep trouble, doesn't it? It's why we feel uncomfortable with me talking this way. You think I'm throwing salvation by grace alone out the window. Just stick with me. Israel declared, we'll do everything the Lord has said. We saw that there in verse 8, but but we're sitting here and we know better. We can't even believe that they said it. We cannot do everything the Lord has said. We haven't done it today. We didn't do it yesterday. And honestly, we have no intention of doing it tomorrow. We cannot make ourselves worthy of his treasuring. And you'll never understand the good news of Christianity until you've deeply internalized this little bit of bad news. Holiness matters. And we're not. Obedience matters. And we don't. So where does that leave God's people? Does it leave us saved by grace, but then constantly kind of losing our salvation because we, we didn't live up to the demands of holiness? Well, some over the years have taught that. Saved by grace, but then keeping our salvation or losing it based on our works. But that's not at all what we see in this chapter. The condition is real. You got to be holy. What we see is Moses called back up the mountain a second time. And this time, what we hear of is God's provision for his people. God's provision for his people. Look at verse 8. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds, a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. The people have said, we'll obey. And Moses has relayed their answer back to God. And if you know the rest of the story, you'd honestly expect God at this point to just start laughing. A kind of scornful laugh. You've got to be kidding me. They actually said they would obey. They haven't even obeyed yet. But he doesn't. That's not what God does. He doesn't doesn't laugh the whole thing to scorn. He doesn't mock them in their self-deception. Nor does he say, all right, well, I'll show them. I'll just take them at their word. Okay, they say they're going to obey me. Great, I'm, I'm coming down in a few days. We'll see how that goes. No, he doesn't do that either. He doesn't leave them to their own devices and their own overconfidence. Instead, what he does is he provides a mediator. It's God's idea here. God provides a mediator for the people. A man who will stand in between God and his people. A man who will represent the people to God. A man who will make them holy. Moses is that mediator. And we need to see here, it's God's idea. It's not Moses' idea. Oh, God, this is going to be too hard for the people. Why don't don't you let... I tell you what, I'll step in for them. No, no, it's not Moses' idea. It's God's idea. Moses, I want you to do this. 
I want you to represent them. And I want you to consecrate them. Make them holy. Set them apart for me. That's exactly what happens. Moses goes down. And Moses makes them holy. He consecrates them. Now this consecration, and it'd be, if we had more time, we could get into the details of it. But just to talk about the consecration, let's just be really clear. This, this consecration, this making them holy, is ceremonial. It is external. Mo- Moses isn't reaching in and changing their hearts. He, he's telling them to wash their clothes and their bodies and to abstain from sexual relations. But what we need to, to be clear on is this is what God says Moses should do. And in doing this, Moses will make them holy. Moses brings them into this kind of state of, of external holiness so that the people will be able to come into an external, visible relationship with God and not be consumed. And that's what happens. But of course, even as we understand that the externality of it all, we're reminded that God doesn't live on a mountain. His throne is heaven itself and earth is his footstool. And external holiness in the end doesn't allow us to really be in his presence. Oh, it, it kept Israel from being burned up with fire on that day. But it will not allow us to stand in his presence on the last day. It will not allow us to stand in heaven itself. What we need to be in the presence of God is a true holiness, an internal holiness of the heart that this external holiness was just a picture of. What's needed is a mediator who can make us really holy, inwardly holy. And then not climb a mountain, but actually climb the stairway to heaven itself. Enter into heaven. And so intercede for us there. Friends, this is what Jesus Christ has done. A a greater Moses, uh, the, the one that Moses himself was pointing to all along. He is the one who has set us apart for God. He is the one who washes not our bodies, but our hearts. He cleanses us on the inside. And he washes us not with water, but with his very own blood. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is a perfect mediator. That he came to this world to represent us. And as our representative, he took our sin upon himself, though he had none of his own. And he climbed onto that cross. And there he suffered the wrath of God. He stood on the cross. He stood in the presence of the holy God. Uh, that that was the real torment on that day for Jesus, right? Not not the mocking of the soldiers, not not their spear, not 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 the Jews passing by throwing their insults at him. No, the true torment of that day was Jesus Christ standing in the very presence of God with all of our sin, and knowing the consuming fire that is a holy God in the presence of sin. Friends, He represented us. He bore our judgment. But then he didn't stop there. Three days later, he got up from the grave. And now all who repent and put their trust in him, they are not only forgiven, but he gives us a gift. 
He gives us the gift of his righteousness. He gives us his holiness. We gave him our sin. He gives us his holiness. And now with that holiness, that real holiness, a holiness that he actually lived out in his life, living the same kind of life we did, but but actually living it out with that holiness, we can approach God. We can stand in God's presence unafraid. This, this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. You understand that the gospel doesn't just offer you forgiveness. The gospel qualifies you to stand in the presence of God unafraid. Because Jesus Christ makes you righteous, makes you holy. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, this is what is being offered to you. Not a religion that says, clean yourself up, work hard, become better, and then come to God and he'll like you. No, no, a message that understands really exactly how you are. That you, like us, don't even live up to your own standards. That the guilt that you feel, at least some of it, is real, not imagined. And that there is no cleaning yourself up. Instead, Christ has died for you, if you'll put your faith in him. And not only has he died for you, but he's ready to give you all that he is, all of his righteousness, so that it's really yours, so that you can stand unafraid, not, not guilty, in the presence of God. And friends, you come into that simply by turning away from your old life, turning away from your life of sin, turning away from your rebellion, and trusting Jesus in this, following him. I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like, what that means for you. You can talk to me at the door afterwards. You could talk with the person that you came with. You could simply talk to God about it right now, sitting in in the pew where you're sitting. There is no better gift than this gift of righteousness. And it can be yours today. Now, as Christians, we who have already received this gift, we who have already been made holy through Christ, we see here another role of the mediator. The one who has qualified us through his sacrifice actually continues to wash us. He continues to cleanse us. He continues to set us apart for God. That is, he sanctifies us. To be sanctified is simply to be made holy. And we understand that Jesus does this progressively. He's changing us from the inside out. He is making us really holy and not just legally holy. Now, he doesn't do it all at once. It it, it is a process, and it's a process that's going to take your whole life. But through the Holy Spirit, he is using this life. He's using the trials. He's using your sufferings. He's using this church. He's using your friends and your family members. He's using your joys and your successes. He is using all of it through the power of his Holy Spirit to sanctify you, to make you holy, really, even as you've become holy legally because of Jesus Christ. This is why James can tell us to count it pure joy when you face trials. I mean, that's crazy talk. Count it joy when you face trials? Yes, because God's using it to sanctify you, to make you holy. It's why Paul can instruct us in 2 Corinthians 7, purify ourselves and perfect holiness out of reverence for God. 
Why does he tell us to purify ourselves and perfect holiness? Not so that we'll be saved. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people that are already saved. Because we've been saved, we give ourselves to this work with the Holy Spirit, becoming what he has made us to be. As Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, Now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, that is redeemed, the benefit you you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Friends, life with God in his presence, unafraid. Which means if you're sitting here this morning and this whole description of of, of sanctification, of actually becoming increasingly and gradually over your lifetime more holy, even as you've been made holy in Christ, if that sounds like something that happens to other people and not you, if that doesn't sound very attractive to you, if you don't really see any evidence of that in your life, then you need to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Because this is what the mediator does. He doesn't make us perfect overnight. But he is at work in our lives, making us holy. This is what the mediator does. He always does it. He never fails at it. When God possesses his people, he treasures them. He provides a mediator to make them holy. Ultimately, when God possesses his people... He gives them himself. That's the third thing we need to see here. God's presence with his people. Look there in verse 16. After Moses had gone, uh, sorry, 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. The priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. When God comes down to his people, when his presence is made known in the midst of his people, there is no mistaking what's going on. No no one has to explain. This isn't some like private mystical event. No, it is public. It is obvious for everyone to see. It is cataclysmic. The the, the blast of the shofar, the the, the ram's horn, would, would forever after be a signal of God's presence with his people. Creation at this moment is is in tumult. Lightning, thunder, clouds, fire, the very mountain itself trembling as creation itself kind of strains to bear the presence of the creator God. What we really have here is is right back to the beginning of Exodus. It's, It's the burning bush all over again. But that was just for one person, so a bush would suffice. Right now we got the whole nation gathered. The whole mountain is aflame. What theologians call a theophany, an appearance of God is going on here. But the text is very careful to to make clear that God isn't in the smoke. 
God isn't the fire. He's not the lightning. He, he's not the thunder. That's simply creation, kind of announcing his presence. Now, the presence of God, the actual presence of God, is there in verse 19. Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. Where is God? That voice. God speaks. The people don't see him. They hear him. He is present with them through his word. Now, we, we need to grasp this because this is crucial for what it means to follow God in this world. In all of our talk about intimacy with God, in all of our right concern about relationship with God, we must never forget that there is a fundamental distance between the creator and his creatures, even for us as Christians. Because of sin, we cannot see God and live. Adam and Eve, who used to see God, they used to walk with him in the garden. They got cast out of the garden. We now live in the age of the ear, not the eye. Ever since the garden, that's the age we live in, the age of the ear, where we don't see God, but we do hear him. We hear him speak, and he comes to us through his voice, a voice that commands, a voice that summons. It is a voice of authority, because it is the voice of God. And that means, friend, if you want to know God today, if you want to experience God today, then you must listen to him. You don't see God in the sunset. You don't see God in the mountains. You hear of him there. That's what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that nature pours forth speech about God. But where we fundamentally hear of God is in the scriptures. Because this is why as Christians, we want to read the scriptures every day as as, as often as we can. Not so that we become scripture scholars, but because we want to know God. And this is where God reveals himself. This is where God is present with us through his speaking, through his word. This is why we, we devote time to preaching. I've been preaching. I've got a timer right here. Just just in case you all don't know, I know how long I preach. I, I know you've wondered. I've been preaching for 50 minutes. Look, there are a lot of churches that you can go to here that will give you 30 minutes of music and 20 minutes of preaching and get you out in an hour, in, in an hour or maybe even less. And they love Jesus. I, I, I get that. You, you'll, you, you'll hear the gospel there. But my fear is that if I treat God that way, well, let me put it this way. <laughs> if I treated my wife, that way honey i i I give you 20 minutes a week what's that going to do the relationship right 20 minutes a week that's that's all i got time for honey i don't think that's going to work i I fear that that kind of attitude towards god's word produces a people that know god lightly distantly i don't know about you i want to know god I want God to search me. I want want to know that intimacy. That's going to take time. The same kind of time that we give to our relationships with each other, that is going to take time. We want to be in his presence. We want to know him. Which means we've got to listen to him. This is where preaching is important because 
if you just read the scriptures on your own, after a while, you're only going to hear what you want to hear. My main job in life is to help you hear things that you otherwise wouldn't hear in the scriptures. And you know what? Your job in my life is to do the same. To help me hear the word of God in ways that left to myself, I won't hear it. So it's not just preaching. It's small group Bible studies. It's one-on-one Bible reading. We want to know God, and that means we want to be in his word together, helping each other hear. What God has to say in this chapter is terrifying. When the Holy God reveals himself to us, it doesn't create warm fuzzies. This is not a warm fuzzy chapter. This is a terrifying chapter. It's awesome. It is shattering. And it's always that way when God shows up. The words of God's presence in this chapter are words of warning. Don't come up. Don't break through. If you break through, I'm going to kill you. Don't come. Stay at a distance. Only Moses and Aaron get to come. Which is why, friends, by way of conclusion, we need a better mediator. We need a better mediator than Moses. Moses made the people holy. They, they were allowed actually to come up to the foot of the mountain and not get burned up. But they're left at a distance. Unable to actually come onto the mountain. Unable to actually come up to the top of the mountain. And it would be that way for the rest of their history. The temple later will be modeled on the mountain. The people in the outer courtyard left at a distance. Some of the the priests and and, and the elders, as we would see later as we go on in in the book of Exodus, able to come partway up, partway in, inner courtyard. But only the high priest allowed to go to the very top. That would characterize their relationship with God for the rest of their national existence. God would be present, but the people at a distance. As good a mediator as Moses was, We need a better one. And Hebrews 12 declares that that when the people of Israel heard that voice, they begged that no further word be spoken to them. Do you understand? No further word spoken to them. God, we can't know you. We can't bear to know you. Stop talking to us. And yet that's the way we know God. As he speaks to us, you see the dilemma. We need a better mediator. Friends, through the gospel, this is what we have. We have come to a better mountain and a better mediator. Think about Hebrews chapter 12 again. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. The holy, heavenly Jerusalem itself. Not Moses, but Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Not to the blood of bulls and goats, but to his blood, which speaks a better word to us. The word Israel heard at Mount Sinai was a word of warning. Keep your distance. But God was not content that that be his final word to his people. And so he sent his son. The word made flesh. And in that word, God speaks a better word, a word of grace that invites us to draw near, a word of peace that sets our fears at ease, a word of hope that truly cleanses us from our sins, A word of love that treasures his people, that delights in them because they have been made truly holy. And then he gives us his spirit 
His actual presence to dwell in us until that day that He returns to bring us to dwell with Him. It's incredible. The day will come when we will see Jesus face to face, when the mountain of the heavenly city comes down and we live on that mountain with God. Until that day, we live in the age of the ear and God speaks his loving presence to us through Christ. Friend, are you listening? Can you hear the words of love? Run to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our our hearts are so often filled with fear. Fear at your word. Fear at what it will cost us to listen to you. Fear of what it will mean if, if we were to really enter into this kind of consecrated, intimate relationship with you. Father, set our fears at ease. Give us ears to hear. To hear how much you treasure us in Christ. And then to speak. To speak those words to others who need to hear them, even as we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.